Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. All right, now I'm going to talk briefly about the sponsors that make this podcast possible. And keep in mind that all the money from these sponsors goes towards hiring outdoor journalism interns. This year, we've hired three interns and paid them $15 per hour. And over the course of this podcast, we've hired seven different interns, not only helping us report on Oregon's outdoors, but also teaching young college students journalistic skills that they can carry forward. Plus, it's a pretty fun internship anyway. They get to travel outdoors, report about the environment. It's a good gig, and these sponsors make it possible. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we get rolling. So this part you'll recognize. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is focusing this summer on the best way to care for its forest, beaches, and waterways through a promotion that emphasizes cleaning up and leaving no trace. We'll dive into how they do that just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks this fall and winter to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to get firewood from sources local to your destination to avoid bringing invasive insects, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at state parks, Oregon.gov. All right, in this episode, we're taking a look back at the 2023 Oregon wildfire season, looking at acres burned, homes lost, air quality impacts, and more with a regional fire boss. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, today we're looking back at the 2023 wildfire season here in Oregon and putting it into context. We've had a significant amount of rain recently. We're expecting a little bit more. So we've definitely reached the end of fire season. That means it's time for my year-end story that I write at the end of each fire season that sort of sums up everything. So today I'm going to start by giving you some top-line statistics. How many acres burned? how many days at poor air quality and where, homes lost, and stuff like that. We'll look at some of the most impactful fires of the season and what they tell us. Then we're going to talk to a longtime wildland firefighter and current regional fire director for the U.S. Forest Service to get some perspective on what it all means and what they're seeing in the field. So let's get into it. <music> 
All right, if there was one sentence to sum up the past fire season, it was that it burned a lot less acres than we've seen in recent years, but the fires that did burn had a major impact. Another key word for this season was luck. This season very easily could have been worse, but time and again, we got a good slug of rain at the perfect time. So let's dive into the numbers. Overall, this fire season in Oregon had 183,000 acres burned. And that's quite a bit below the average we've seen for the past decade. The last fire season that was that low was 2019. And before that, you'd have to go all the way back to 2011 to find another season where less acres were burned. For some context, the Labor Day fire year of 2020 burned 1.1 million acres. In 2021, we burned over 800,000 acres. And last year, it was over 400,000 acres. Again, this year, under 200,000. So that would indicate this was a quiet season, right? But that's not really the case. Oregon had a ton of impactful fires, many of which erupted very close to communities, bringing evacuations, road closures, this season, 125 homes and structures were lost to fires in Oregon, which is the third highest on record since 2015. It was also an extremely expensive season. Overall, fighting wildfires cost a whopping $484 million. That's the third most expensive fire season since 2015, and again, a lot more expensive than other seasons where a lot more acres burned. We also had major evacuations in places that we wouldn't necessarily expect them, most notably South Salem, but also a number of communities around Eugene. As a spokeswoman for the Oregon Department of Forestry told me, the department is getting increasingly used to fighting fires closer to urban settings, you know, where they're bringing in one of the big aircraft that comes in and drops water, not over a forest, but over a community, you know, so that's, that's becoming an increasing thing. It was also a pretty bad year for air quality in Central Oregon in particular. Bend had 21 days of air quality that registered at unhealthy levels for sensitive groups. That was tops for the state and the most in Bend since detailed records started being kept in 2012. Medford and Oak Ridge were two other places where air quality definitely wasn't great, but both have had worse years recently. So those are kind of the top line statistics. For a much deeper look, check out my upcoming story in the Statesman Journal that'll have a ton of charts, tables, etc. Okay, up next, I'm going to talk about some of the most significant fires of the season before we get to our interview with the fire boss. All right, let's talk about some of the biggest and most impactful fires of the year. I should start out by noting that my numbers don't include most of the 90,000 acre Smith Complex fire that was almost on top of the Oregon-California state line, but was definitely a California fire. This fire had a major impact, shutting down Redwood Highway 199 for an extended period, impacting homes in that area. But the reality is the vast majority burned on the California side of the state line around towns like Gasky and Hayuchi. This is one of my favorite areas anywhere. I've talked about this area, which, in, which is right next to the Jed Smith Redwoods a ton of times. I know a lot of people down there rafting the Smith River, fishing the Smith River is incredible. 
you know, that area was heavily impacted and, you know, it's worth driving down there to check it out. But again, that was really a California fire, which is why I didn't focus on it a ton. As far as solely Oregon fires go, the biggest one of the season was the 34,000 acre flat fire just inland of Gold Beach near the confluence of the Rogue and Illinois Rivers in southwest Oregon. We were really worried this fire was going to turn into a mega fire down there because so many fires in that area have grown extremely large in the past. This is the land of the Biscuit Fire, the Chetco Bar Fire, the Klondike Fire, all of which roared over 100,000 acres. And I think the fire scars from those old fires helped get this one under control. It also didn't get hit with a huge gust of the Chetco winds, the infamous winds that have led to the fires to blow up in the past. So this fire ended up being, you know, contained around 34,000 acres, which again, when this fire started, we were pretty worried it was going to get a lot larger. Uh, the fire is still listed as the cause is being undetermined. But look, I mean, it started near a campsite. There wasn't lightning. So the assumption here is that it was very likely human caused. We don't have the investigation report yet. The second largest fire of the season was a little similar to the flat fire in that it started near a campground and grew pretty fast. And that was the 31,000 acre bedrock fire in the Fall Creek area east of Eugene. This fire sent a ton of smoke over into central Oregon and was one of the big causes of the poor air quality in Bend that I mentioned earlier. Again, this one was listed as what I'll call undetermined but likely human caused. A little bit of good news for this area is that uh, the Bedrock Campground, where the fire got its name and where it started, the campground itself is apparently in pretty decent shape. The fire kind of burned around it and not through it. The third largest fire of the season was, a, was lightning caused, and that was the 25,000 acre lookout fire. Another one east of Eugene, and this one in the Mackenzie River corridor. Again, we really expected this one to grow a lot larger, but it was definitely aided by those rainfall events that really helped slow it down. It did have a big impact while it was burning, though, leading to big public lands closures along the Mackenzie, and at its peak, you know, with a bunch of other little lightning caused fires in that area, it led to the shutdown of highways 126 for a little while and 242 for an extended period. That Mackenzie Pass area was closed because of this fire, the Pete's Lake fire down in the Three Sisters. So it had a big impact in that area. Okay, I don't want to list all the fires just from largest to smallest because size isn't always the most important thing. In fact, the most damaging fire of the season was the Golden Fire out in Klamath County. It was just 2,100 acres, but it burned 43 homes and 69 structures. Another potentially significant fire, and one that we were all worried about for a while, was the Camp Creek Fire. This one was ignited in that lightning burst in August, but it was located in the Bull Run watershed that also serves as the drinking water source for Portland. Luckily, the fire was hit hard by firefighters and aided with rain, but because of its importance to Portland's drinking water, that one could have had a big impact, but luckily, it really didn't. And then lastly, I have to mention the Liberty Fire in South Salem, just because it's really illustrative of a concerning trend that we're seeing. So this grass fire in South Salem led to the evacuation of 600 homes for a day. Most striking for me is that this is the third straight year a wildfire has erupted and brought evacuations to this forested part of South Salem. The way things are going, at some point it's going to burn a lot of homes if this keeps happening because it's come really close 
multiple times. We've spent a lot of time sounding the alarm in the Willamette Valley as the summers get hotter and drier, and suddenly all that forest we love having in our towns, like Forest Park, Minto Brown Island Park, Hendricks Park, and Eugene, all these amazing parks that make our cities such cool places to live, they're becoming fire prone. And so knowing that and understanding that I think is going to be really important for future summers as they just continue to get hotter and drier and more fire prone. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to have a conversation with U.S. Forest Service Fire Boss Alex Robertson. So stay with us. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water. And it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. On the Tillamook Coast, we've cared for our forest, farmlands, beaches, and waterways for generations. It's in our DNA, and we bet it's in yours too. While visiting, help us care for our coast. Place trash in garbage cans, pick up after your pet, stay on trails, respect private property, and follow beach fire rules, which means extinguishing fires with water while also checking local rules to avoid igniting wildfires. Tillamook Coast welcomes your visit, and we hope that you'll become a temporary local while here. A few ways to do that include pitching in on a beach cleanup or taking a guided kayak tour to hear about ways to protect bays and rivers. There are science hikes to take, nature preserves and marine reserves to explore, or you can visit a farm, a commercial fishing dock, or even stop by a fish hatchery. Find out about all these options and how to care for our coast at tillamookcoast.com slash caringforourcoast. Once again, it's tillamookcoast.com slash caringforourcoast. All right, well, to talk about the 2023 wildfire season, we're joined today by Alex Robertson, the Regional Fire Director for the U.S. Forest Service. Alex, thanks for joining us. Well, uh, good afternoon, Zach, and uh, happy to be here. So, Alex, from our journalist perspective, this was kind of an odd fire season. I mean, in terms of acres burned, it was pretty low, you know, under 200,000 acres in Oregon, which was is below what we've seen in recent years. But it didn't feel like a quiet fire season. We had evacuations, highways shut down, homes lost due to fire. So what did you make of this fire season as someone, you know, managing crews across the region? Like what stood out to you? Well, I think you captured it pretty well. And, and it's not, you know, our fire seasons aren't defined by the size of our fires or the, the number of acres, because that's a that's a little bit of a, a um a false metric to use. And the reason for that is you can have one east side grass fire or light fuels fire that is 100 or 200,000 acres pretty easy. But 
you know, a lot of times we don't even know those fires even exist, but when you have fires in the areas where we did this year, the Rogue Siskiyou along the coast, the Coast Range, the Umpqua, the Willamette, the Mount Hood, those kind of places, those those are fires that um, don't need a lot of acreage to have a tremendous amount of impacts. And whether that's impacts to communities where they're bearing down or uh, long duration smoke impacts to communities because those fires just don't go out very easy and take a tremendous amount of time, energy, people, and a tremendous amount of exposure for our responders to to engage in those fires because of the terrain and the, the just the, the sheer size of the trees that they're dealing with. Sure. You know, it felt like we had the possibility a number of times for fires to, you know, to have a big blow up. I mean, you know, I looked at various times we looked at lookout fire, the bedrock fire, the flat fire for sure. And it really felt like they were going to make a run, become one of those mega fires we've seen in recent years, whether it was the Labor Day fires, the Cedar Creek fire bootleg and stuff like that. But they didn't, you know, it didn't happen. So what would you attribute that to? I mean, why did those fires stay more medium sized and not become those mega fires? Well, I, I wish we could take a lot of credit and uh, there is there is some credit deserved. So you know, the, our biggest fear on fires that sit on the west side of the Cascades, which is where a lot of the fires that you mentioned, you know, that's where they're situated, west side of the Cascade Range. And that, and we know come fall that uh, Mother Nature often brings us east wind events. And, and we've certainly in the last number of years experienced a lot of east wind events that have, have had a severe impact on our, uh, on Oregon in general. Um, communities, lost houses, lost lives, all of those things. And, and so when we engage these fires, it's, it's really the west side of those fires that is our number one priority to do everything we can to prevent the spread when and if we get those east wind events. Um, now this year, uh, we did have some east wind events, but the, the difference between uh, what we saw with, for instance, the Cedar Creek fire last year or the Labor Day fires of uh, a few years ago is we didn't have that long sustained uh, three or four day, uh, 24 hour cycle of east wind, you know, dry, hot east wind events. And, mm -hmm. and while we started to see those uh, forecast, um, we, never, we never actually experienced those at a, at a level that we've seen in the past. And so every one of those fires was susceptible to that. And that was certainly our, our focus and fear for, for really all of the summer especially those a couple of those fires like bedrock like flat that were were with us for months um, and we did everything we could to to shore up especially the west sides of those fires and 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 lock those into a place where if we did experience those winds that we would have the best chance of keeping the fire in its current footprint but uh uh, we just did. We got lucky in in some ways, and just didn't have those long sustained events. And then, of course, we got we got a pretty significant amount of rain. Yeah, and it felt like those rain events came at really really helpful times. I mean, I you know I and remember it was late August. We had that big lightning burst, but and you know fires were popping up. That's when Highway 242 was closed. Lookout was really going. And, you know, and then we got a decent amount of rain that seemed to slow it down. So to what extent did the timing of the rain and the amount of rain help this year? Well, it's a, it's, it's an event we call not a season ending event, but a season slowing event. And, and those are pretty normal for us. 
mm-hmm. um, where where they come, how they come. Uh, this one tended to be this year was a little bit more widespread and affected multiple fires, which was really beneficial for us. Um, and it really gives us a chance to breathe and and re re look at our our um, potential and our risk as we're employing you know this year uh, over 6,000 firefighters just in in Oregon and Washington alone um, when we get a, an event like that and and we're looking out ahead looking at the forecast looking at uh, historical weather data to um, make some really informed decisions about where we need to put a tremendous amount of effort and exposure risk to firefighters and and where maybe we don't uh, because of uh, the change conditions and the the risk to communities or to values has has decreased because of that season slowing event oftentimes those events are associated with more thunderstorms and in this case uh, there was some thunder and lightning along with that uh, that system that came through but um, it really did have a lot of widespread uh, moisture that, that really helped us out. Yeah. So one thing that we've been noticing on the west side in particular, in this season in particular, was that we've seen more urban wildfires or fires in the urban wildland interface. I know the Oregon Department of Forestry, you know, that's kind of their zone for firefighting. Um, but as wildland firefighters, are you getting more used to being closer into communities or places where fire wasn't historically uh, a problem in recent years? Yeah, I would say that's an evolution that we've experienced for the last really 10 or 15 years. You know, in, early in my career, when I was on hotshot crews, I spent a lot of time in really remote places fighting fire, wilderness areas, uh, places really hard to get to. And 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 a, I think a, a lot of the reason for that is, is the fire stayed smaller for a longer period of time. Now we see a new start. It grows quickly. It grows rapidly. We don't have time or uh, the ability to always go into those remote areas to get them, or we can't safely get there uh, or put people there. And so we end up being on the back steps of those communities and those places that it's safer, uh, those places that we've done some fuels treatment ahead of time so we can be more effective or have a higher probability of being effective. Where, Where we're fighting fire has definitely evolved over time to be more in those that that urban interface area the other part of that too is that the urban interface has grown out into (laughs) into the wildlands so it it, it's both both of those are happening at the same time this year it felt like there was a little bit more uh on the human cost fires i mean there there are some fires currently that are listed as undetermined but they they happened a lot of it like bedrock like flats both came out of campgrounds um, it felt like this season there was a little bit more human influence in in ignitions as compared to recent years i does the numbers in your experience bear that out for this season in particular it really does you know we we did see um an uptick uh, more human caused fires this year than lightning than than our normal ratios in the past now um, the 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 strategy that we're really looking at is we want to do some a little bit deeper dive uh, um, some analysis into that where are those focal points where we're seeing those those human caused fires and then really seeing what we can do as all the agencies to uh, take a more proactive approach in preventing that um, there there certainly was your 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 feelings are correct that it, there was more human caused fires and, and you probably saw that throughout the, the summer with our prevention messaging and 
Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the, the work that the agencies are doing trying to, to get the public uh, on board with uh, just being careful with fire. And then our public use restrictions across all uh, protected lands was, uh, was very apparent and very um, impactful to the public this year uh, to, uh, again, help prevent with those uh, unwanted fires. You know, one thing that was interesting with those uh, human caused fires was I, you know, I talked to local fire districts and even some landowners. And one of the things they said was that, you know, historically, they might have been able to do like pile burning or something like that during a specific time of the year. But it's becoming increasingly hazardous to do that. So, I mean, is, do you think there's the, a shift in climate that has an impact in that where like, you know, if you're an old landowner, you've been burning at the same time every year and all of a sudden it's much more dangerous to burn that year that that can be hard to get used to. Uh, like, do you think that plays a role? Yeah, I, I certainly do. And, and I, I think a good example is, is, you know, you look back this winter and, and look at our snowpack, uh, look at the amount of moisture we had. The, the ski areas were, were plentiful with snow. Uh, there's, there's plenty of pictures of giant snowbanks and, mm -hmm. That, um, that really led up to uh, our predictive services and, and our, our folks that look out to, to try to help us understand what kind of fire season to prepare for. And we, we you know, the Pacific Northwest was really not on the radar screen this year. And, and then we saw a tremendous change very quickly. And uh, that's, that's something that's really not, it's becoming normal, but it isn't normal historically. Uh, a, a lot of our fire season was generally tied to snowpack and, and winter moisture. And if we had a big winter, uh, you know, a good ski season meant uh, not much of a fire season. And that's no longer the case. And so things like, you know, pile burning and, and just getting rid of debris and those kind of things, what maybe used to, to be a little bit easier and a little less risky may, may not be um, as easy and much more risky to do just based on how fast things dry out, even even though you, you may be in a wet a wet time of year. Yeah. And I mean, like that, that seems to apply a lot in urban areas too. I mean, I know this isn't your area of expertise, but we had a third season of, you know, a major grass fire in Salem and, you know, close to urban areas. And it just felt like fires popped up in a lot of the places. We just aren't used to having them. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the the fires that we had this year, and this this is the same conversation as the snowpack. Is you know normally we don't have west side fires until later in the fire season, and we had the flat fire very early, and it yeah. stayed with us. Uh, we tremendous amount of energy and effort and resources at the initial attack phase and the extended attack phase, and that that fire still grew. That that is not a normal thing for us. East side fires yeah, that yeah. early. Absolutely. West side, not, that's not normal. Yeah. And I mean, that that seemed to bear itself out in looking at like the cost of, of fires this year. I mean, you know, again, we, you know, I know it's not the best metric, but we ended up, you know, under 200,000 acres burned. But the, the cost ended up being about 480 million, which was analogous historically with a much bigger fire season. So, I mean, what what you talked about this already a little bit, but what would you attribute to that kind of like high number, low acres burned? Like what, what led to that, that spike this year? It, it's a, it's a really easy answer. It's duration. Um, the, the longer that a fire is on our landscape and requires resources, that is a, it's a one-to-one -one with cost. It, is it costs a lot of money to keep an organization in place to, to manage that fire. And so when you have a flat fire, you have a bedrock, you have a lookout that, that are fires that 
rotate through incident management teams three, four, five, even six times, that all comes with a tremendous cost. And you then know, the, and I'm, oh, go ahead. No, I, well, one thing I was going to mention is occasionally I'll hear people being critical of, you know, maybe you should like, you know, not be as aggressive on those with such big teams. But it also strikes me that like both of those fires you mentioned and a lot of them were in like high impact areas where a big fire spread would have been calamitous for a lot of different areas. So I'm curious how you how you measure that. Well, it's it's, you know, our, our number one priority is is human and, and responder life uh, protecting people right and every one of those fires had a community off to the west and and some of those communities experienced evacuation some of them only experienced smoke smoke impacts but um, every one of those fires uh, you know outside of Camp Creek Camp Creek had had a community near it but it also had a, a pretty important watershed and water source for for the greater Portland area those are those are huge values that um, are that taking a hands off approach is not an option for us, yeah. and so um, that engagement, that uh, that constant um, management of those fires through the weather event that that gives us the relief that we need to to no longer have to do that. That's what uh, as soon as those fires are on the landscape, we're we're committed to that. All right. Well, we've been joined today by Alex Robertson, the regional fire director for the U.S. Forest Service. Alex, thanks for joining us. Yep. Anytime, Zach. Thank you. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you like what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.